There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, on the 30th of January 1972... In and around the Bogside in Derry, 13 people were murdered by members of the British Army's Parachute Regiment on what came to be known as Bloody Sunday. Another innocent man was to die a few months later from his wounds. This weekend marks the 50th anniversary of what by any standards is one of the worst days of the Troubles in the North and quite possibly one of the worst days involving any kind of conflict that has taken place on this island going back certainly over the last century. The anniversary is to be marked in Derry and joining me from our native city is Irish Examiner political correspondent Aoife Moore. Aoife's uncle Patrick Doherty was one of the 13 who died on Bloody Sunday. Aoife, you're very welcome. Thanks very much for having me. I think this is my hat-trick on the McClifford podcast. <laughs> Might well be, yeah. Um, Aoife, first of all, tell me, what is the mood in Derry this week coming up to what is a major anniversary? Very busy. Um, the town is very busy. The families are very busy. This is the biggest event that we have ever organised. Um, there's a week, nearly a week long programme of different events. The theme is one world, one struggle. So there's a lot of uh, international elements. You know, there's discussions around, you know, amnesty um, from people discussing Pinochet. There's people from Palestine. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of visitors, there's a lot of tourists. Um, from what we're hearing, the hotels um, are packed this weekend. Um, it'll probably be the biggest turnout we've ever had. Um, so there's a lot of organisation, which is why I took the week off work. <laughs> Kick them up and give them a hand. But it's, it's dairy people are very proud of how we, we carried ourselves in the aftermath of Bloody Sunday and very proud of the families. So although it's weird to say it's like celebrate you, but it's a nice, it's a nice feeling. There's a buzz about the place. Yeah. And as we know, Derry, it's a small, smallish city and the areas of the likes of the bog site and the Craigan, particularly in the, the early seventies were very close knit, not least because of the way the city had developed under unionist rule and gerrymandering and what have you over the preceding 50 years. So I presume in that context, most people would have known one of those who died on the day. Most people knew at least a couple of the people who died on the day. You know, Derry uh, is described as a city that acts like a village. Everybody knows everybody. Um, we're still incredibly close-knit. That comes from, I think, living under oppression and a serious amount of poverty breeds a sense of community. And the thing, you know, you need to remember is a lot of the victims were only 17. They were mm. children. So a lot of younger people would have known one or all of them. Some of the men, I believe, they were killed in Bloody Sunday, had worked together previously um, because of the nature of the civil rights movement and the marches. A lot of the men hailed from the same areas. You know, They were from 
Craig and the bog side, the brand away all rose mine, that, that part of the city. So yeah, I think, you know, when you see the images of the coffins, the 13 coffins lined up together in St. Mary's Chapel and Craigan, um, it was a, I think at the, even at the time, a no-brainer that these people would be buried together and had joint funerals because that's just who Derry is. That's who Derry was. So yeah, that sense of community, I think, was only strengthened in the aftermath of Bloody Sunday. You know, my cousins often talk about how you became nearly like a mini celebrity when you were a Bloody Sunday orphan, as they called them. Um, he said, you know, my uncle or my cousin Tony often talks about getting sent to the shop in the aftermath um, of Bloody Sunday and they didn't have to pay for bread or milk. They were given sweets. You know, everyone knew who they were mm. and everybody dug in. You know, the amount of money donated from all our dairy people who didn't have any money um, was huge. So yeah, definitely a big sense of community and still is. And you mentioned your cousin and it was your, un- your uncle Patrick Doherty. Um, obviously, you didn't know him yourself. For, for, for those who don't know Aoife, she's, she's about 20 years too young, I think, to have been around on Bloody Sunday. But within a family, he had his own family even at that stage. I think he, he was about six children when he died. Yeah, so my uncle Patrick was 31. Um, his wife, Eileen, was 27 when she was widowed. And they had six children. Um, the oldest was 11 and the youngest was around six months. God, and, and he had, and just in, in terms of himself, like um, the vast majority are quite obviously, he was there in terms of marching for, he, he was involved with the civil rights movement in that respect. Yeah, my Uncle Paddy would have been um, heavily involved in the civil rights movement. You know, he'd worked a number of, you know, kind of odd jobs because as we know, the Catholic men couldn't really get steady work. In those days, he was a kitchen porter, I believe, at one point. He worked in DuPont factory for a while. Um, but he was heavily involved with the civil rights movement and that kind of notion of trying to just get a house and get a job and be able to vote without your surname and your religion playing a part in it. Um, but I, what I, the thing that sticks out the most for me is um, my cousin, Tony, his son, wrote a book about his life and about his father before Bloody Sunday. And Tony was around, around six or seven when his school friend, another six-year-old, was hit by an army sarsen and killed. He was run over by a tank at six years old and died. And he said that his dad, Patrick, had said to him, don't hate, you don't hate the British army. I think Tony had said to him, oh, I, I hate them. And Paddy said, you don't hate because hate eats at your heart. And I think that kind of, this is like the one thing that stands out for me about him and his kind of dedication to civil rights was only about helping himself and his community and others, but it wasn't really about anything else in terms of revenge or hatred or anything like that. Yeah, and as you say, your cousin, I suppose, at that stage, like six, seven years of age, to lose one of his friends and then his father and, and his mother raising six children. It really brings it home at a family level, the whole impact of, of what um, what occurred. Just just for a bit of background, because a lot of people, I suppose, mightn't be aware of, of, of the background of uh, Bloody Sunday and what happened. And if we roll it back, um, August 1971 internment 
was introduced. Now, internment, as people may be aware, is basically you can people can be arrested, taken away without trial. And this was introduced by the Stormont government as they saw it as a method to tackle the paramilitary activity that was going on. Now, at previous times, I think, over the preceding 50 years or so, there were occasions when they used internment and they had targeted specific individuals who had been involved in paramilitary activity. But this time, it would certainly seem that their intelligence or whatever was hopelessly out of date because initially they lifted about 300 people from the nationalist community, the vast majority of whom had nothing to do whatsoever with either wing of the IRA, which were active, the provisionals and the officials. And then with the week that followed, there was rioting in Ballymurphy, the estate in Belfast, during which nine innocent people were shot dead by the Parachute Regiment. And there was no repercussions for those murders and the soldiers appeared to be acting with impunity. And then you roll it forward to January 72. The Stormont government banned all marches, which effectively meant all civil rights marches. But one went ahead, I think, in McGilligan Strand in County Derry the week before the 30th of January. And then we had the anti-internment march, which was organised for Derry. Tensions, I suppose, were heightened. One of the big issues there was the decision to deploy the parachute regiment into the city particularly considering what they'd been involved in in Ballymurphy and the reputation they were gaining. And then as the marchers reached the entrance of the bog side about four o'clock in the afternoon, the soldiers opened fire. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah, um, I would say that I've listened to anything and everything I can get my hands on in terms of witness statements. And one that always struck me um, is Bernadette Devlin, the civil rights leader who was there on the day. And she talks about um, being stand, standing on the back of the lorry as the lorry was uh, in the bog side. And she said when they heard the shooting, she initially thought it was rubber bullets. Um, I think most people in the south, um, when you hear the word term rubber bullet, you think of something that looks like a jelly bean. Um, a rubber bullet um, is about seven inches of pure hard rubber in the shape of a bullet that has blinded and murdered children on the streets of Northern Ireland. And they'd used rubber bullets, I think, in, in McGilligan Strand the previous week. Yeah, and they're incredibly dangerous. They've killed children, they've blinded people, um, and they're shot at you know high velocity. So even they say they didn't panic at first. She said she didn't panic at first because she believed it was rubber bullets just shows you how conditioned um, people were. And then she said she realised then, because live rounds have a different sound, the crack is different, the high velocity is different. And she was screaming at people to get down, you know, get down, there's there's live bullets. And when she talks about it, she gets incredibly upset that she didn't cotton on quicker, that it was live rounds. But no one was expecting... um, what had happened because the other thing I would say, even though Bally Murphy had preceded it, there was no journalists around at Bally Murphy. There was no march at Bally Murphy. Bally Murphy took place, that massacre took place over a number of hours with completely unrelated people who were in the street or coming out of mass or whatever it was. So Bloody Sunday, although people may have heard that people had been shot in Belfast, I don't think they realised the kind of massacre that it was. So I don't think they were expecting, even if they knew about the brutality of the 
paratroopers were expecting them to fire indiscriminately and the crowds of thousands of people. And then from what we know from Savo, the Savo inquiry to then chase people through the the estates um, and sometimes shoot them waving wine tankies, uh, shoot them in the back, shoot them from windows and tops of buildings. So I don't think anyone who was there, no matter how much he knew about the paratroopers, would have predicted this kind of level of mayhem. Yeah, and one version I saw that at around four o'clock there, and there was a, there was a bit of rioting, which was very typical of the times, and it's, it was nearly it wasn't fun and games, but at the same time, it wasn't totally out of the blue, and it, you know it was very typical going on at the time, and that a number of the soldiers, one description there, the number of the soldiers moved forward, assumed the firing position, and just began. Shooting people, and we know that every single one of the people shot didn't have any guns, had no nothing of anything of that sort. They just moved forward and started picking targets and shooting. There's pictures of the boys rioting. Um, so William Street, which is still there and houses some very good uh, takeaway chip shops now, but uh, William Street was the epicenter of the rioting and always was every Saturday, every Sunday. And there's photos of the boys there throwing stones and bits of brick and bottles at the soldiers and their kids. They are kids, you know, they look at them, that they're, they're kids, they have hankies around their faces and stuff. Um, but yeah, he kneeled down in the uh, crouched position from what we know, from what this testimony, and just began firing indiscriminately and the, the crowd. I can't imagine how terrifying that would have been. And we do know that, you know, I've said already, a number of the boys who were killed on the day were only... 17. And your uncle, I think, was shot in the back. He was. Um, if you go to the Museum of Free Dairy, we have his belt. It's a long brown leather belt. And in exactly the middle of the belt, there's a perfect semicircle where you can see the bullet entered the belt. It was described um, during the Savile and Clary 2 soldier as a, a hunter's shot which was incredibly traumatic, obviously, for our family. Paddy died on his own. Uh, he was face down on the ground. He was crawling to safety. There's a photo of him about 10 minutes before he died. He's got a hanky over his face because they had thrown so much CS gas. And he's crawling along the ground next to a wall, trying to get to safety. Um, I think he's shot within the next half an hour from the photograph being taken. And there were witnesses behind the wall he was trying to get to who said that he was shouting, don't let me die on my own. He kept crying out, don't let me die on my own. And Bernard McGuigan, a local man, walked out with a white hanky to Paddy's aid. And the witnesses, the other people there were holding him back saying, don't go out, don't go out. And he said, no, no, I can't listen to this man any longer and they'll not shoot me with my white hanky. And he walked out. I think he got about two feet from Paddy when he was shot through the back of the head and he died on the spot. That is the level of cruelty that we are talking about when we talk about Bloody Sunday. God, yeah, it is really, um, it is really shocking, um, just the detail of it. Um, then there is the aftermath and quite obviously a whole city traumatised whole island in some ways traumatised even when it was seen down here we saw 
even in Dublin, the, the March on the British Embassy attempted to burn it down. But the big thing to emerge from it, and I, I think this was really so significant, was this Widgery report. Lord Widgery was the man who was appointed by the British government to look into the whole incident and compile a report. And he came back and more or less completely exonerated the soldiers. Mm-hmm. What was, you know, a complete whitewash. Um, it was rushed. I think it was announced. Bloody Sunday was on the 30th of January. I think the Widgery inquiry was announced on something like the 3rd of February. And it was a joke, uh, an absolute joke. You know, it maligned those who were murdered. It exonerated the soldiers, the families um, were brought onto the stand. Witnesses were brought onto the stand and cajoled and condescended. And you need to remember that these are people who were also living with, I can imagine now we would call it a serious amount of PTSD. Mm. Um, you know, there are people who were there on Bunny Sunday who have never recovered and never did recover. Um, the amount of what we would have called it and like my mammy's family would have called it, you know, shell shock because we didn't have the vernacular for it then. We didn't have the language of mental health. But, you know, the addiction problems, the mental health, the serious trauma. So all of that then was compounded by Woodry and his report, which, you know, was laughed out of town by anybody and everybody in Derry. And then the families on their own had to fight for another 40 years so that David Cameron would eventually say what the the paratroopers said in the name of mm. the British people was unjustified and unjustifiable. And the other thing that in the days, weeks and months after, the other major uh, development as a result for it was, and very understandable in the circumstances, a huge surge in Derry of young people joining the IRA. Mm. Yeah, and I think, you know, it was that night, the night of Bloody Sunday, um, I believe it was Ivan Cooper, who himself actually was a Protestant man who was chair of the Civil Rights Association, told the British press, told the press that was there, and he spoke directly to the British state. And he said, you have just given the IRA the biggest recruitment advert that they will ever have in Ireland. You know, I one of my friends daddy's was a he was a solicitor but he was at the it's it was a christian brothers then it's now St. columns college um at the time of bloody sunday i think he was around 15 or 16 and he said on the friday there might have been 30 boys in his class and when he went back to school on the monday there was about 12 boys left because from what people have said you know there was queues out the doors of houses they joined the ira in the aftermath of Bloody Sunday. And you know, I, even this week, I've spoken actually to XIRA prisoners who said there had been some uh, movement in Derry and there was, you know, always a Republican base, but nothing compared to what it was after. And that, I think, although the murder of innocent civilians is one thing, but then the legacy of lives lost and increased violence by an IRA recruitment campaign is something that probably extended the troubles and cost a lot more people, their family members. And it's the fault is nowhere but the British state. Well, I think there's no doubt about that. As you say, uh, you look back in 
all those kids who joined the IRA then, the amount of perhaps some of them killed and uh, perhaps more of them would have been killed themselves, times in prison. And the whole thing, no question, the world extended the uh, the length of the conflict as it came to be known. And and that's the kind of fallout, I suppose, that's really inquantifiable, but it really um, is a massive part of the whole thing. It, it effectively meant that what was a massacre lasted for years rather than that afternoon and, and the loss of 14 lives that day. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed this week, you know, for the Irish Examiner, I spoke to two men who told me directly that they joined the IRA because of Bloody Sunday. They were 14, 15 on the day. They were at the march. They were dodging the bullets as they ran home. And they got home when they said, that's it. I'm joining the IRA. And they both ended up in the hitch blocks and both did a lot of time in prison and were, you know, mentally, physically and sexually abused while they were on the blanket protest. And they directly draw a line from how their lives turned out to bloody Sunday. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And then you had the quest for justice. And this was, as you say, largely, if not exclusively, uh, organised and, and pushed for by the families in the first instance, was it wider than the families in terms of was there a structure within the city, within the nationalist community in the city that um, that formed to push for a proper inquiry? No, um, the kind of momentum behind it really came from my cousin Tony, who was in his early 20s, and John Kelly, who's still, you know, massively involved. But it was the families, really, because you need to remember as well that, you know, there was going... The university was not the done thing in Derry. You know, there was no structures like that. No one had ever campaigned really before. You know, the civil rights movement died the day of Bloody Sunday. The air went out of those tires. And so I think the families and like Artone often laughs at times talking about, you know, as I said, like herd and chickens trying to get all these people together and organize a campaign. No one really knew what they were doing at the start. But I think, you know, I think the, the thing I'm proudest of all of my family is, you know, the Bloody Sunday Justice campaign and everything that they did because they were just ordinary people. It should not have been left to them to fight the British state. And they fought every step of the way, um, if only with the pressure of the families and the people of Derry. There would have been no Savile inquiry. I would also argue that without Tony Blair and the Labour government, at the time, there would not have been a Savile inquiry. So I think things fell into place. But dairy people were not going to let this go. And even now, you can see it 50 years on. It's massive. And dairy people will always remind the British government that we won't forget. 
And was there any help from the Irish government, for instance? No. <laughs> there was a lot of misinformation and defamatory statements that these families and this campaign was a front for the IRA. Um, ironically, the same things that the British state had tried to um, defame our families with after Bloody Sunday continued then when they went to the Republic and tried to seek help there. There were obviously people, individuals who helped and obviously there was a swell of support for the families in the Republic. But the political establishment were not in any way, I think, or, and I think my family would agree, were not as helpful as they could have been. I'd say our Tony and the rest of the families have met about five or six T-shirts <laughs> at this stage. And I don't think they would say that they felt helped whatsoever by Dublin. I mean, T-shirts would put out statements or, you know, it would be mentioned if they went to Downing Street. But there was no real pressure. The pressure very much came from the families and the British press. And why do you think that notion took hold in the Republic? I think um, it's very easy for people in the Republic to compartmentalise atrocities that happen in the North. If you can just turn around and say, well, they're both as bad as each other. I think sometimes that if people in the Republic can say that's, that's a Northern problem, and, you know, there's no smoke without fire or, you know, listening to this narrative that, you know, they shouldn't have been there in the first place and, and whatever else. But I do think a lot of it is like a cognitive dissonance. It's a nor- Once things are a northern problem, they do not get the same priority. And I have often said, you know, even if you wanted to ignore the big things, ignore Bloody Sunday, ignore Bally Murphy, ignore this, that and the other. There were children in their school uniforms being killed by the British Army across the north. You know, one 14-year-old girl was walking across the bog side in her St. Cecilia's uniform in the 70s and she was shot mm. by a soldier. There was nothing done. There was never anything um, from Dublin. Maybe some hand-wringing, maybe some strong statements. But there was never any action. And I think... The inaction of the government then informed the opinion of the public. You know, if the government doesn't think it's a big deal, it can't be that big a deal. I think that's a big part of it too. And I think obviously as well, the media probably could have and should have done more in the South in their reporting. They report on not only the atrocities, but also the socioeconomic issues that were exacerbating the problems in the North. You know. We were gerrymandered to death. You know, people were living in ghettos. Um, Catholics were not allowed to vote or, or own a house. And by anybody's stretch, you know, it was happening in America. <laughs> and they were reporting on it. You'd think they would have get a bit more excited when it was happening 90 miles from Dublin. Yeah, I suppose there's varying opinions on how, how much was reported on uh, and I suppose one other thing that possibly, and I, I don't know because I was very young and I wasn't involved in the media at the time myself, but possibly what may have fed into it is economically things were pretty bad 
in the South in the 80s. I know myself because I had to immigrate like a lot, an awful lot of people. I don't know whether that fed into it, but I, I absolutely take your point. One other thing that occurs to me in relation to that, Aoife, because I know, for instance, if you look at the, the Birmingham 6 case, there would have been a similar sentiment early on, most definitely, from the Irish government and those around them. And it turned out that their campaign was led by an English solicitor, uh, Garrett Pierce, I think. And it would seem that at some point they copped on that these were innocent people and they got behind it to some extent, possibly at the latter stages of the campaign. Would you say there was a similar thing here or did they did they come on board at all? Oh, I think, oh, absolutely. No, I think the Irish government um, in the last 10, 20 years have obviously cottoned on. I don't think there's any question about that. But when the campaign started in the 80s and the 90s, I would say right up to the 90s, the families were viewed with an air suspicion. You know, I see it even now, you know, the notion of using, um, not to bring up, uh, <coughs> Other newspapers or Sinn but um, you know, I've seen uh, headlines recently about you know Sinn Fein being controlled from Belfast. This notion of using the word Belfast like it's a boogeyman, like there's an, something innately dangerous about Belfast. It really betrays a derision for the North. And I think, obviously, I'm not tarring all the politicians with a one brush, but it is more than fair for me to say. They sat on their hands for a lot of what happened in the North. And there's tangible evidence of this. You know, Bernadette Devlin talks about during the Battle of the Bogside, when there was being reams of CS gas poison being thrown in the Bogside, she had got in touch with the Irish government and asked for gas masks for children and was said, please supply these. We won't even tell people they came from Dublin. Just give us the gas masks. And it was refused. That is the level of inaction from Dublin. And that went the whole way through the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. And then obviously when the IRA campaign got more and more violent and more and more atrocities happened, it gave the Dublin government even more excuse not to get involved and believe that more Catholics and nationalists were involved in the IRA because they probably were. So there is a serious amount of resentment in the North across the nationalist communities about the Republic and how the Republic treated the North. And I don't mean the people, for the most part, I do mean success of government. And that's an element I'm very interested in because from that you deduce that the people in general would have been more sympathetic or were more sympathetic, but they were led by the government are. Is it a question that the government, apart from the fact that the government, some would suggest were paranoid, but others would say perhaps they were just afraid of the power of the IRA. After all, the IRA's objective one was to overthrow the state, so you could have a certain amount of paranoia. In I don't think they were afraid of the IRA. I don't think they were afraid of the IRA. I think they were afraid of passing off the British state. Right. Okay, that's that element. But the other element of it then is, are you suggesting that the people in general were led by opinion in the government are were they apathetic themselves? I think there's a bit of both. I feel like, you know, um, I wasn't alive at the time, but there was a great amount of support in the Republic from the public for the nationalist communities. You know, we mm. saw that in like 
charity collections and everything else. Um, so there is no doubt that people knew what was going on in the North and people, you know, were affronted by, you know, the actions of the British state. I don't think there's anybody doubting that. But the people can only do so much. The government has to lead. And there was a completely apathetic government from Fianna Fáil to Fianna Gael. It didn't really matter to people in the North because they knew neither was going to do anything about it. And um, I have no doubt now after this podcast comes out that I'll have to go off Twitter for a few days. <laughs> Don't talk to me about that. <laughs> Who are you talking to? <laughs> but, yeah, I don't, I'm not, obviously there are people in the South with some very mm. rotten opinions about the North. But I think for the most part, the public knew and there was a type of apathy, but that apathy was bred from inaction from your government. If your government can turn a blind eye the children being shot in their school uniforms, then it gives the people reason to believe that they can as well. And the narrative, you know, they're both as bad as each other. How many times have you heard that? How many times have I heard that? And they say that a British soldier and a 14-year-old girl in their school uniform are both as bad as each other. Mm. It's, it's, it's ludicrous. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And... One final element to that, I would suggest that an awful lot of opinion, wrongly, because as you said, it was a question of tarring, uh, in a vague sense at least, the nationalist community with the one brush, but an awful lot of opinion in the South was fashioned by the level of atrocities that were committed by the IRA. And wrongly, as a result, perhaps in some instances, as you were saying, that kind of uh, lens they looked at people through perhaps that fed in there as well. It was totally wrong and it was totally unfair on the nationalist community, the majority of whom were opposed to that and and who had absolutely nothing to do with it. And I would also say that I still see the mirror of that now in the type of social media abuse that I get, in that if you tar people as provosts and shinners and rabid nationalists, then they don't have to care about you because Anything that happens to you, you deserve it. So it is so handy for people to turn and and was handy for people to turn and look at nationalist communities in the north and say, well, you deserve it because you hide guns for the IRA, because you support the IRA, because your sons are in the IRA, and therefore your life isn't as valuable because then you're both as bad as each other. And that wasn't the case. We know that that wasn't the case. Oh, yeah. But that yeah. was the mindset that has infected and the mindset that still infects a lot of people in the south who then. They maybe don't uh, talk about it publicly anymore, but they create fake Twitter accounts and give a lot of northern people <laughs> a lot of grief. Uh, I can tell you one thing, Aoife, being, being tired on social media isn't confined to northern people. I'm living, uh, I'm living proof of that, but I take your point, absolutely. Listen, finally, I just want to ask you, bring it back to the anniversary and all. In Dirty Now... Is there a sense of closure or would a lot of people still like to see prosecutions pursued against the soldiers? I don't know exactly how many of, of the soldiers are still alive. Presumably they're all pretty elderly. But is, is there still uh, a want for justice to be achieved? There needs to be prosecutions. Yeah. So, you know, Soldier F was the only soldier on Bloody Sunday who was mm. going to face any charges. He was only going to face two counts of murder, five counts of attempted murder. Now, we know from Savile, the Savile inquiry found that Soldier F, um, they find that Soldier F killed a lot more people than two, uh, including my uncle, 
Um, the charges that were put to him for murder were not for my uncle, um, or for two say other men. They're the brother of one of the men has been granted right of appeal because the crime prosecution services said that there wouldn't be enough evidence to prosecute him, that they were going to drop the charges. So there is an appeal ongoing uh, from one of the families to appeal that decision and try and get soldier F in front of a court. He has an elderly man. He's a grandanoi. But I do think a lot of people would like some sort of justice, some example made of these men. And maybe, you know, I'm sure Soldier F's family would argue that it's not fair that it's him. Um, you know, that that's not how it works. But there is definitely a hunger for justice. However, I would say that a lot of people have made peace with the fact that there will not be justice as we know justice. You know, the British government does not do justice when it comes to Northern Ireland. And we've saw that now with the plans for the amnesty. You know, they are planning not only to throw victims of British army violence under the bus, they're also now prepared to throw victims of IRA and loyalist violence under the bus in the name of protecting soldiers who served here. And I think that, you know, I've grown up um, knowing that the British government, you know, doesn't see me as equal, doesn't see me as, as one of their true citizens. But I cannot imagine the hurt and pain that loyalist and unionist communities must feel when they hear Boris Johnson and other conservative politicians talking about how there will also be an amnesty for IRA men or an INLA or whoever else that murdered um, without impunity in their communities. So it doesn't bother me because I don't expect any better, but they do. And I can't imagine how hurtful that is for them as well. Absolutely. And I suppose it just reflects for a long time the, the attitude that you'd have. And well, you could say the British establishment, personally, when I think of the British establishment, they don't even think of Boris Johnson because he's just such a, a unique animal in himself to the extent that all he ever thinks about is whatever will suit him personally, politically. And, and, and that's all he's doing there is, is basically looking for votes, which is even more appalling, if anything. Aoife, as always, Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon, and thank you folks for listening. We'll be back again next week. Take care till then. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are like interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.